what could possibly make me happy? Where could I possibly find satisfaction? Now, the ancient teacher in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, he describes the seeming meaninglessness of life. Listen to to chapter 2, a few verses from, from Ecclesiastes 2, where the teacher says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers, a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And yet, with all the pleasures of life, this is the conclusion that the the teacher in Ecclesiastes reaches. He concludes, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Toward the end of the chapter, this is, this is the horror of his emotional state. So I hated life because the world that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So my heart began to despair. That ancient conclusion that the pleasures of this life are meaninglessness, they're meaningless, has a a modern resonance for us. Listen to the description that singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen gives. Cohen, a rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee, Grammy award-winning artist, best known for his broken hallelujah. He described his life a couple of decades ago. He said, I tried everything that they had, Wine, women, song, money, career, drugs, art. Every kind of extravagance. And everything helped in its way in that it said, this doesn't work. I think that's the greatest help you can get. To find out that it doesn't work. Because nothing works. Nothing in this human realm was meant to work. And yet, even after two decades of reflection on that view of the world, the idea that no pleasures in this life can can ultimately satisfy it, in in the month before his death a couple of years ago, Cohen described his final state. He said, I've never thought of myself as a religious person. I don't really have any spiritual strategy. I just limp along. I limp along like so many of us do. The things that we had hoped would bring pleasure leave us feeling empty. Wealth, power, achievement, family, material comfort, security only offer temporary satisfaction. And so we drive ourselves further into the chase. If, if it's still out there, it must still be out there. And so we, so we run as fast as we can to try and find the satisfaction that we think this life will offer, hoping that our striving will finally get us to our goal. Or maybe we crash into despair, looking at the failures of our lives and thinking, 
well, there must be happiness out there somewhere, but not, not for me. There must be something wrong with me. So let me ask you, what are you chasing? I mean, maybe think about it by answering some of these questions. What is it that you daydream about? I mean, if you had a few moments to just think, when you catch yourself wandering off, what is it that you're thinking about? How do you think about your own future? What are your plans? How do you spend most of your time? Or maybe I should ask it this way. How do you wish you could spend most of your time? Or in what ways do you envy others? The success that they have, the things that they have, the relationships that seem to bring them so much joy. If we seek to find meaning in this life alone, in the things of this world, then we'll end up in the despair of Ecclesiastes 2. We'll end up with the disappointment of a life unsatisfied. Now, Jesus confronts our temporary desires and offers us eternal satisfaction. And so open a Bible with me to John chapter 6. The Gospel of John is the, the fourth of the Gospel writers giving us an account of the life and ministry of Jesus during his time on earth. You can find the passage that I'm going to read in John chapter 6 on page 1056, page 1056 in the Bible that's there in the pew in front of you. Because in John chapter 6, we find Jesus having fed thousands with so much food left over that they, they fill 12 basketfuls of food. We, we find that the people decide then and there, having seen that miracle, that they will make Jesus king by force that they see what he can do and they say, well, let's take advantage of this. Let's use Jesus' power for our own ends. See, they wanted Jesus for their own purposes. And so Jesus confronts their desires and offers them something even greater, something that truly satisfies. Listen as I read John chapter 6. I'm going to begin at verse 26 and read through verse 40. John 6, 26. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, 
You have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let me pray that God would apply this word to our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you for the the clear challenge that Jesus offers to us. Your word, which is a living word, which comes not merely written as as an ancient document, but comes with your power. Lord, use your gospel to change our hearts. Lord, where we have been content in the things of this world, Lord, push us with a holy dissatisfaction that we would find our, our true delight in Jesus alone. Lord, for those that are here at at our invitation, those that have have gathered with us in worship, maybe out of curiosity, maybe truly longing to find an answer, I pray that their search would yield an answer in your word today, that you would show yourself to be the one who meets our needs, that they would be able to see Jesus and hear his declaration that, that I am the bread of life, that they would believe and receive the gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word this morning, you would would work in the lives of our middle school and high school students as they hear the word preached this morning on their annual Reality Factor retreat. Lord, as they have heard your word preached on Friday night and and on on Saturday, now again this morning, I pray that, that they would not come back to us the same as they left, but that they would be transformed, that the friends they have invited would hear this gospel, perhaps for the first time, and find faith in Jesus. Lord, that they would come home not merely tired from the weekend or cold from the weather, but changed by your word. Lord, we ask you to do that work in them and in us now. We pray because you are the God who offers us true hope. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The choice that Jesus offers is is pretty clear. You can either chase after the things of this world, food that spoils, or find eternal satisfaction, food that endures to eternal life. It's it's the contrast he sets right there in verse 27, where he tells them, do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life. He, he in some sense, has sidestepped the question, and and we sidestepped it so much I didn't even read it to you in verse 25. When they're trying to figure out, they, they wanted to make him king earlier in the chapter because of the miracle that they seen. Jesus disappeared to a a mountain to pray, and now he's gone. And so they came looking for him. And and they're asking, when did you get here? Now, he could give them a a pretty neat answer. How how did this take place? Well, Jesus walked across the lake. He walked on water to get here. And yet he doesn't doesn't talk about that at all. He, He says, you're only here because you ate a loaf of bread and you had your fill. But that miracle was always supposed to be an arrow pointing to something greater. John's gospel is a book of signs, miraculous signs, arrows pointing us toward Jesus. And so he says, you're here because you ate bread and had your fill. But I'm offering you something much greater. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that lasts forever, that endures to eternal life. I mean, Jesus is offering us 
eternal satisfaction. A contrast between the temporary with an expiration date and that which lasts forever, endures to eternal life. And so with such a clear and obvious choice, do I want something that's only going to satisfy me briefly and in small ways, or do I want something that will satisfy, satisfy me forever and completely? Well, it seems like it should be an obvious choice. And yet so often we choose that which is right in front of us. We're here with Jesus because we had our fill. We got this temporary satisfaction from the, the things of this life. And yet Jesus is offering us so much more. In a, in a culture where, where bread would go stale rather quickly without the, the, the possibility of preserving it, a, a people who are taught to pray for their daily bread, this offer of bread without an expiration date is shocking and striking. Jesus wants to give them true satisfaction. And yet, as soon as he offers it to them, they, they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, okay, then what do I need to do? How do I get what you're offering? They're, they're in some ways sort of missing the point. They're willing to chase after what Jesus, what they think Jesus can do for them. He could be a king who could bring temporary and temporal power in time and place, throw off the shackles of Rome. He could be a king who could rescue them. And yet he's offering them something that lasts forever. Now, sometimes we warn children right before a meal, you know, stop, don't snack, you're going to ruin your appetite. Now, my dad always tells his grandkids, he says, don't listen. Don't listen to that. You can't ruin your appetite. It comes back before the next meal is ready. Now, I'm not saying, parents, we shouldn't warn children not to, not to fill themselves on, on gluttonous junk food, but but the reminder is, we, we are always in need of the next meal. We're always in need of the next, the next thing that will satisfy. And, and whatever it is in life, that we think, if I only had that, if I only achieved this, and yet Jesus is saying, I will give you something even greater, an eternal satisfaction. But it's not merely that it, that it lasts forever. That's not, that's not the only thing that makes it great. It's that Jesus is the one offering it, and Jesus is the offer itself. I mean, he, he says it repeatedly to them so that they will, they will understand. He says in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's saying, which I will give this to you. I'm offering it to you. And they're trying to say, okay, well, then what do I need to do to get this? Like, what's the payment that I would have to make, Jesus, in order for you to give this to me? That's what they're saying in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? And look at Jesus' answer in verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus is saying, I'm standing right here in front of you. It's to believe in me. And then they demand more miracles. This is the group that just saw the miracle. They just saw him feed the thousands. And the Gospel of John will be filled with even more miraculous signs than this. But Jesus isn't, isn't going to jump up and perform on their command because it's not a, a true and honest. It's not a, it, it, they're not really saying that if we could just see a miracle. They've already seen it. They're saying, if you will do what we want you to do, then we will follow you, Jesus. But that's not following Jesus. That's telling him where to walk and then just following along behind. I mean, that's the way that, that sometimes if you play with a toddler, you know, that's how they want to play with you. 
you do this. And if you're, if you're another toddler, well, then you fight back. If you're a grandparent, then you just play along. But pointing Jesus and saying, Jesus, go that way, and then I'll follow you, that's not, that's not submission in, in any way at all. Jesus is saying, I am the one who is here for you. He says, it's not Moses, but it's God who gives you this true bread from heaven in verse 32. He continues to to press this argument in verse 33. For the bread of God, that which I'm offering you, he says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life, Jesus declares in verse 35. As they're they're wrestling with this idea, as they're, they're, they're struggling to sort of see behind the metaphor, to understand what is he talking about, he just says it finally explicitly in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes, he who he comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. See, what can satisfy you forever? Not something with an expiration date. But Jesus, your relationship with Jesus lasts forever. See, you are an eternal person. Yes, you have a beginning date, whether, you know, your birthday or your conception date. We, we would say that's where you began, but you are meant to last forever. Everything you chase after in this life has an expiration date. I mean, it might physically have an expiration date on it, or you know that next year they're coming out with a new model that's faster and better, or you look at the successes you've achieved and you know, well, next year they're going to give that trophy away to somebody else. There's another month coming, another employee of the month whose picture will take my place. Or you look at your vocation and you think, I don't know if I can last. I'm running at at such a ridiculous speed to just try and keep up with the success that's here. I'm going to burn myself out. Or even if you say, no, no, this is right where I should be, you realize that that there is a day in which that will end. See, everything in this life can't satisfy eternally because everything in this life is temporary. And everything in this life is finite. Yes, you can get joy and satisfaction from the things of this world, but only if you see them in comparison to the greatness of Jesus. You see them as gifts that Jesus gave. See, I'm not even telling you, love the things of this world less. I think what Jesus is telling us is, is exalt me more. We're, we're meant to love Jesus more. See, the problem is we, we have disordered loves. We, we, we have disproportionate love. So we love the things of this world as if they will give us satisfaction. But what we need to do is see Jesus as the only one who can give us true satisfaction. Every good gift is a gift that he has given us. And so he gets glory even as we use the things of this world. He gets glory even as we rejoice in a loving relationship. He gets glory because he's the one who has given us the gift. And Jesus is the only one who will not use us up, who will not wait until, until we've, we've, we've had enough and then make us pay more. Jesus will not chew us up and spit us out because what is the price to bring you your salvation? You know, I didn't read these verses, but it, but it comes later in this chapter. In ver, beginning of verse 53, Jesus describes that, that he is the one whose body will be broken, his flesh torn apart, his blood shed. Now, again, they're, they're lost in the metaphor of trying to figure out what is Jesus talking about? He's saying, I am the one who will give my life in your place. So what does it cost you? Now, you can put a price tag on many of the temporary things in this life. I mean, you literally could go online right now and put a price tag on that thing that you really want. Or you could put relational or, or time 
costs into, well, for my career, for me to be really successful, this is what it's going to cost me. This is who it's going to cost me. This is who I'm going to have to step on to get there. But see, when we come to Jesus, what is the cost? The cost is great. It's enormous. What does it cost for Jesus to declare, I am the bread of life, to offer us eternal satisfaction? His very life. But who pays the price? For everything in this life, you will ultimately pay the price. In your time, energy, devotion, your attention, given to that thing or that person or that relationship or that success. But Jesus has paid the full price. He is the true and lasting and and necessary sacrifice for our sins. And when Jesus offers us this gift, it's a gift that will last forever. It's a gift that he guarantees. The satisfaction Jesus gives us is eternal. It's a personal relationship with him. It's a personal satisfaction, but it's also a guaranteed satisfaction. Look at, look at what he says in verse 35. He makes that declaration, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. It is a guarantee from Jesus himself. A guarantee that he will meet our deepest longings, meet our deepest needs. And then he presses the argument further. Look at verse 39. He has just told us in verse 38 that he came to do the will of God. He was willing to give his life for our sins. And he says in verse 39, And this is the will of God who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. See, Jesus is making a guarantee. If you come to him, then he guarantees he will hold on to you forever. He's paid the full price. He gives you the gift of this bread of life, and then when you come to him, he guarantees that this will last forever. That's the will that God gave to him. That was the plan of God given to Jesus, that he would give his life for us and that he would hold on to us forever that he will lose none who come to him. But the guarantee is that on that last day, on the, on the great day of resurrection, that you and I will be raised up with him. And so what's it mean for us? How are we called to respond? The people wanted to know, what must we do to do the works God requires? Like, that seems like a, a great thing that you're offering, Jesus, but what's it going to cost me? I mean, because if I could get a, a guarantee that lasts just a couple of years, I'd pay a certain amount. But a guarantee that could last a decade, I'd probably pay more. A guarantee that lasts forever, you know, I might pay top dollar for that. What's it going to cost me, Jesus? The work, verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What's required of us? Faith, trust, belief, an acknowledgement that the plan of God was that God would send his son to die in our place, that Jesus paid the penalty for my disordered loves, for my sinful rejection of God and his good gifts, for, for even the ways in which I've taken the gifts of God and exalted myself through them, and I've rejected God using the very gifts that he gave to me. Every breath you breathe is a gift from God. The ability to suck air into your lungs and then, and then press it out and say there is no God is a gift given to you by God himself. And so I can take God's good gifts and use them against him 
And yet Jesus died for me. And what's asked of me? To believe. To trust in him. Now, this isn't faith in an, in an abstract sense. Not just merely saying I'm a, I'm a person of faith. Because usually if we, if we leave it in the abstract, we're talking about faith in ourselves, basically. No, what is, what is he saying? It is to believe in the one God has sent. It's to believe in Jesus himself. Jesus repeats this then in, in verse 40, where he tells us what God's will for us is. In verse 39, he, he told us what God's will for him was, what was God's plan, that he would give his life and that he would hold on to us forever. And now he says, well, what's God's will for you? What should you do? Verse 40, my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. What is required of you? To turn to Jesus. To trust in him, to put your hope in him. To stop chasing after the things of this world, to turn from that pursuit, to turn to Jesus and trust in him. To find that he is your true satisfaction. See, it doesn't mean rejecting all of the things of this world. It means using them as gifts given to you by God. It means loving them in a proportionate way. Loving them less than you love God. Loving God, loving Jesus completely, totally, and then loving the things of this world as gifts he's given you. See, Jesus gave himself for you. And so we respond with love toward him, not merely for what we might gain from him, not merely so that we can make him a king by force and tell him what to do and where to go. No, that's not faith at all. Not faith in Jesus, that's faith in ourselves. See, we love him because of what he has done for us. We love him because of who he is. We love him because he's the Savior. And so perhaps the failures of this life were meant to point you to something greater. Perhaps even your success in this life was meant to lead you to someone greater. The 1958 NFL championship game is considered the greatest game ever played. Now, professional football was gaining in popularity during the, the 1950s, but America was still a baseball country. But the 1958 game is called the greatest game ever, not because it was a, a perfect game or played flawlessly. There were fumbles, there were, there were failures. But because it was a back-and-forth battle between two teams, the, the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants. It was a battle that went down to the very wire, actually taking the game into overtime. The first time that they would decide a, a game by a sudden death championship, the first one to score. And so in overtime, the Colts' defense held, even though they'd lost the, the coin flip. They received the ball then and then drive down. Johnny Unitas drives the team down the field to win. Now, the defining moment had come earlier in the game, in the waning seconds of, of regulation, when, when Johnny Yu connected on three straight plays with his star-wide receiver, Raymond Berry. The Colts were down, needed to score in order to, to, to push the game on. And, and, he, and he threw a pass 25 yards over the middle to Barry, and then another 15 yards, and then, and then 22 more yards, so that with seven seconds left, the Colts could kick the game-tying field goal to set them up for the win. Now, Barry's stat line was remarkable for this game. 12 catches for 178 yards in a championship game. 
that one of the defenders was quoted after the game, you couldn't stop the Unitas to Berry combination. It just seemed like every play, we knew what they were going to do. Unitas to Berry, Unitas to Berry. It was like a nightmare for us. But after the win, as Raymond Berry joined his teammates back in the locker room in their championship celebration, he realized that this pinnacle of success, a championship, a championship which is the, the highlight of his Hall of Fame career, these accolades of personal success, left him feeling empty. He didn't even feel like celebrating with his teammates. Instead, he's trying to make sense of it all. What had given him this desire to, to pursue this? Why had he given so many years of his life to this? In an interview later, he said, he asked of himself in the locker room, what was the purpose of it all? There's got to be more than life, more to life than chasing a football. This is on championship Sunday, holding the trophy aloft. There's got to be more, than, more to life than chasing a football. And this from the man who caught everything that was thrown his way. What was the purpose of it all? It wasn't in a championship that Barry found an answer. It was later off the football field when someone shared with him the good news of what Jesus had done. It was when he became a follower of Jesus because of the success he had achieved in life. And he said, there's got to be more to life than this. He realized that his search for meaning, his purpose, his satisfaction could only be found in an eternal relationship with Jesus. Only Jesus truly satisfies. Now, perhaps it's your success that leaves you feeling empty. Or maybe it's your failures which threaten to crush you. And yet Jesus says to all of us, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Come to Jesus. He will satisfy. He declares, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I ask that we, where we feel a satisfaction in ourselves, you would leave us with a sense of discomfort today that your word would expose our sin. Lord, for those who have come in seeking answers, Lord, I pray that they would find the truth in Jesus. Lord, that we would see his love for us and respond by throwing ourselves upon him in faith, by trusting him, giving ourselves to him. Lord, let Jesus be our satisfaction. Lord, let us turn away from the, the things which tempt our hearts in this life to find our real meaning, our purpose in Jesus. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the gift that is given to us by the Savior who sacrificed himself, Jesus, the bread of life, Jesus, our true joy. We come praying in his name. Amen.